Consummate Athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hey, Peter. What's up? Well, I have been mountain biking more, so I am generally happy. And yourself? It's true. Your mood has really increased this past week. Yeah. Yeah. I always forget that that's the type of cycling that I came into cycling with and the one that I mostly like. So it's good to be out. Trails are in good shape. And yeah. Yeah. Well, last week we actually hit the point where I think I I yelled upstairs because you were just like deep in the work cave. And I was like, if you don't go out for a run, we're not coming back. And I took the dog and we left for a walk. Right. Yes. <laughs> reminds me of the time that my mother made my dad turkey burgers when I was a child. And it's Hereford family legend that dad came home, saw the turkey burgers, turned and left. Yes. Stone cold. <laughs> that he is. Uh, so you've been mountain biking, but you've also been, now you can actually do some skills coaching. And yes. Stuff. They tend to go together, I guess. But yeah, some more skill sessions. So working with people getting into cycling is there's a lot of people who are sort of getting going with it, but then also people who are trying to improve skills in this sort of time away from racing that we have or, you know, take on a different discipline. So people try and gravel is, is the big thing now, but you obviously there's skills that go along with that. There's the cyclocross crowd. I'm starting to hear even a bit from already and rumblings of crosses coming. I'm so sure we'll not be far behind. So hey, there's that, but mostly you know what? I got out on my cross bike yesterday for the first time. Well, actually technically I think this was the first time on this bike outside. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, other than the rollers, it's really the first time I've ridden this bike. And uh, yeah, I had a bit of a uh, bit of cyclocross nostalgia. And it is, in fact, a Trek Crockett. So uh, we'll see. It might actually get raced this season if, if racing comes back. I don't know how that plug makes any sense, but it is a, a Trek Crockett, I guess. Well, it's my new bike. <laughs> like, I'm okay. excited about it. Okay. <laughs> I hadn't really... This is like the first time in a few years that I've had a, a new bike that's actually mine, not like a loner. Gotcha. Yeah, exciting things. Okay. Uh, we had some posts up this week, so sort of following last week's episode, which seemed well-received around sort of competing with past selves and getting older, as we all are. Uh, so that you was are. We got some good feedback about that, so thank you for that. And I think probably another episode in the future we'll do sort of based on questions and feedback and ideas that came out of that. Uh, but we had a plan, pivot plans is a post that went up so there's a yeah so if you kind of heard that episode and you're like okay great i'm not going to compete with my former self anymore but there's also no races on the calendar so what the heck am i supposed to do um peter has put together a couple different pivot plans that are based sort of around uh ftp endurance yeah sort of the idea like you sort of pick what you want to work on and there's a, I think guidance in the article too about, you know, you need to work on speed or you need to work on endurance or you're really like keen and want to work on FTP and that's all good. So now take two months. Here's a bunch of workouts to sort of guide you through that. And, and some, the plans I try and build usually have some sort of like preparation for the event or like things to consider as far as like off bike stuff as well. Um, things like the FTP tests were often like overemphasizing the test and forgetting about the like two or three workouts a week that are supposed to be, you know, really working towards that. So, right. Right. Yeah. So that's what that post is all about. Yeah. And that's over on consummateathlete.com. A few other posts too. We have an, uh, uncommon mountain bike gear post that just went up sort of some of the things that we really like that, uh, you know, aren't necessarily just the 
the immediate go-tos you think of yeah, when you like, think about mountain biking oh you need a mountain bike no it's it's more than that yeah so there's like tire plugs it's one of them yeah my personal favorite if you're someone who likes wearing baggy shorts and like t-shirts during the summer i have a few uh clothing tips for that to avoid the having to wear full lycra underneath in order to have pockets and to have you know a chamois and everything uh, so a few few options there uh yeah so that's that's all exciting, and I'm pretty stoked on today's episode as well. Um, we haven't had... Uh, it's been a while since we've talked about food, and in particular, I don't think we've ever actually talked about the gut, which is really one of my favorite topics. Yeah, I find that it's tough because there's no clear answers and everyone's an expert, uh, but we do have an expert about the gut, Dr. Patrick Wilson. Um, yeah, he just came out with the book, The Athlete's Gut. And let me tell you, if you're kind of wondering how the digestive system works, um, this book is, I mean, it's honestly kind of like reading a fun textbook, kind of all about, yeah, the athlete and how your food digests and, you know, sort of really into the science of it. And it's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah, and I think he mixed the, you know, sort of the descriptions of the body and what's happening in it with also sort of like situations, common situations that the athlete runs into with the gut. So I thought it was it was a good episode, well-timed in a lot of ways, I think, right, where this is something that we can be working on without races is, is trying to figure out our fueling and might be getting more fueling in for the endurance crowd, you know, trying to really push limits. It might be just figuring out like what you can actually handle or working into handling food while you train. Yeah. And it's not just about what you're eating on the bike. I mean, I wrote about that in fuel your ride a few years ago. Most of, you know, how your gut works as an athlete doesn't actually happen just on the run or on the bike. A lot of how your gut is going to react to stuff is going to happen, you know, the rest of the day. Yeah. And I thought I, I had some takeaways for this episode. Um, the chewing piece, which is fairly common, you know, in, in when people get gassy or something, you know, it's like, oh, you got to slow down when you're eating your meals and make sure you're not like just inhaling your food. That's just a classic like early 90s diet advice. So it's like yeah. the chew something a hundred times. I think it even goes disgusting. back. I think it's called like horse. The guy's name was like horsely or something. And that was like the diet it was like you had to chew every piece of food 51 times or I would not want to eat out to dinner with a person like that i'm just putting that out there well i mean there's probably a middle ground but his thought was like okay solid food real food's really trendy for sure but then there's some people like we're just like breathing really really hard and maybe you just like stuff it in your mouth and don't really take time to chew it so i thought that was like a great reminder and so it, we often get caught up that it's gluten or something but what if it's just actually that you're inhaling solid food and then your stomach's having to deal with this like huge chunk of of food right yeah for sure so I think that's where like the, the mechanics of like what is your digestive system? Well, first it's your teeth and like the saliva in your mouth and stuff, right? And I think this applies uh, especially or also or especially when we're in exercising because our gut isn't a priority for our body, right? It's all going to the exercise muscles. Timing was another big one that we talk about um, as far as like how close to the ride do you eat or not eat or you know, timing it during and after and that sort of thing. And, and again, that can have effects, you know, if you had a whole pizza and then went and did intervals, obvious consequence, but there's smaller perturbations of that idea, right? Uh, I think that was it. I think that just the reminder as we go into anything nutrition is to think context and like goals. Are we thinking performance? Are we thinking health, lifestyle? Yeah. And that's always like, sort of, you got to just always step back. Not that 
I think everything we discussed is, is very valid, but I think we always want to be asking sort of just like stepping back and being like, are we a marathon or achieving a two hour marathon? Not all of us. So how do we apply this knowledge to our situation and our goals? Yeah, I think my my thing is always just going to be to lead with the like what's going to be the healthy lifestyle. And once you can kind of dial that, you can start kind of thinking more towards like the performance bias. But I think I'd say I certainly fell into this trap like as an endurance athlete, my first focus when I kind of started learning about nutrition and stuff, which came as I got into athletics was this like, okay, how can I eat to to go faster? Um, instead of how can I eat for optimal gut health first and then figure out the faster piece of it. So yeah, definitely, definitely worth sort of, yeah, weighing, weighing the two and. Well, just to figure out, right. And I think that the book does a good job of, of helping people to figure out where on that spectrum they are. Right. It's not as always as simple as like you're full out fasting and never eating or you're Don't consuming that. 90 grams of carbohydrate, right? Which is sort of that like peak physiological limit of like a physical specimen of a marathon or, or something, right? So Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Well, let's let uh, Dr. Patrick Wilson talk us through this. Enjoy the episode, guys. Why the athletes got what caught your eye or what caught your interest with that? I mean, I've always been interested in athletics growing up. You know, I played basketball, did cross uh, country, track and field, college I ended up doing my dietetics degree and then realized I wanted to do some sort of graduate work and wanted to switch to something else just a different degree and you know I, my interest in sport kind of led me to doing uh, exercise physiology and through my master's program I, I figured out pretty quickly on I like to write I like to do research so I decided to stand for my PhD so I've always kind of been interested in the intersection of nutrition athletics uh, and that sort of stuff I mean, eventually, some of my studies that I've done have incorporated gastrointestinal issues in athletes. And just over time, a larger percentage of my research kind of agenda has looked at some of that stuff. A couple of years ago, I decided I wanted to write a book. Wanted to write a book. I honestly don't remember all the motivations for that. I it thought happens. this is a good time in my life. They might fade as, through the process. Yeah. yeah. And your memories become distorted, too. You think about, well, you know, this is how it happened, and that's probably not actually how it happened anyways. But for some reason, I decided it was a good time to write a book in my life. We didn't have any kids, my wife and I. You know, it would be an optimal time to try and do it. And I first thought maybe about doing more of a sports nutrition book, but realized that there's a lot of those on the market already, so it's kind of hard to find a nice niche fit for that. And kind of quickly figured out that there's really not anything on the gut specifically for athletes, despite the fact that it's a huge problem for a lot of endurance athletes, especially. Yeah, I was thinking of that today, like literature, because Molly's an author. So like, I'm familiar with like that process of pitching the book. And while I I was just writing here ahead of our call, and I was like, I can't think of another book. And between us, we read like a fair bit and are exposed to it. I'm like, I can't think of really another book. I'm sure there's a few that I'm forgetting, but that deal with this, like specifically this idea of like, gastrointestinal issues while exercising yeah like i've read a bunch on like women's gut like gut issues and stuff like that but yeah to to actually find one that's about and and only like not just a small like mention of it in a chapter or something Mm -hmm. right so when i started when i kind of figured out that's what i wanted to write the book on i did some searching to make sure that really there wasn't a book already that's done that because you know i haven't i didn't spend all that time um researching every possible book out there and there really wasn't anything, at least specifically geared towards athletes and the average person, um, you know, that's not a scientist 
focusing on that sort of issue. I, I found one textbook that kind of covered gut issues, more related just exercise in general, but it definitely was not geared towards the average reader. Uh, was not really you know something that the average athlete would find probably interesting to read. So yeah, I mean I was pleasantly surprised that there really wasn't anything else out there and kind of allowed me to write the book that I wanted to write without having to just kind of focus on areas that hadn't really been addressed already. Yeah. And so with our, our podcast, our listeners were, were very curious about, you know, this idea of the consummate athlete is, you know, we're busy people. We're trying to experience a lot of stuff through movement, but there's obviously other factors other than just like the sport training that we can use to be healthier, to, to perform better, especially when we have limited time, right? Like we can't go and do a ton of volume, but we might be able to eat better or take care of some of the sports psychology stuff. We were talking about the brave athlete earlier here. Um, so your book seems, you know, this whole topic seems really, really good because I do think that this, you know, gastrointestinal issues, fueling well, these are, are very critical topics. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking here for, for our, because we have this busy people, you know, people who are balancing life stress, you know, right now we have our virus stress. Um, I wonder if we could start with this idea of like nerves and anxiety and stress and how that plays into how whatever food, no matter how ideal and optimal, how, how that interacts with our, our exercise and, and the response we get during yeah. exercise. Yeah, I really honestly think that's been a, a pretty underappreciated aspect of gastrointestinal issues in athletes, mostly from a, a research perspective. Because I mean, anecdotally, I think most athletes and most people know that if they're feeling really stressed or anxious that it can mess with their gut function i mean we've all probably had some sort of story from our past where either a job interview or a first date or on a roller coaster ride or whatever it is and you know anticipation anxiety stress those sorts of things can really alter the function of the gastrointestinal tract but surprisingly there really actually hasn't been a whole lot of research on this in athletes to, to verify that. And then also, if we assume that's true, that stress and anxiety affects gut, uh, gut function and symptoms during competition and training, what are the interventions we'd want to use to try and deal with that? So I've published a couple of studies in the last few years now that do seem to verify that, yes, if you are reporting higher levels of stress and anxiety, that it does seem to correlate modestly with a higher rate or severity of several GI symptoms. One of the more interesting ones is that we just published in the last six months here where it was about 150 runners and other endurance athletes that before one of the more recent competitions, they rated on that morning how anxious they were feeling. And those who were reporting kind of in like the top third of anxiousness scores had about four to five times higher odds of experiencing nausea during their race. So that's just one example. And, you know, and if we think about it physiologically, we know there's deep connections between the gut and the brain and the central nervous system. So it makes sense that, um, that what's going on in your head can affect the way that your gut is functioning. I mean, if, if you want to talk about some of the mechanistic stuff that's involved in that, we can, or we can more leave it at more of a 30,000 foot level and just talk more about the generalities. But it's, it's up to you kind of if sure. you want to take a deeper dive into that. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think your book, for those that are curious about that, your book goes into some of the, you know, the, both the mechanistic, you know, the, the 
an anatomical how, how stuff works yeah exactly there you go um <laughs> but i guess one question that that just struck me was like what what when you said they're in the top third do you know what the the question would be like how do you ask someone about their anxiety or how would someone do you have any feelings on how you could assess your your, your anxiety or stress so I consulted with a sports psychologist that I went to grad school with. Uh, Haley Russell's her name. She works at Gustavus University in Minnesota, where I'm from. And together, we kind of settle on um, some different questionnaires that are pretty commonly used in not only like sports science research, but also just research on anxiety in general. I want to say we use the what's called the state trait inventory for cognitive and somatic anxiety. They, they all have such flowing names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, I think it's called STIXA is the acronym. Yeah. So there's a uh, there's a trait component, kind of like how do you typically feel? Like most days, generally, how much anxiety you have? They'll say, like 21 different statements, and you have to rate. It's like a one to four rating uh, on how much you agree with those statements. So maybe something like, you know, my uh, heart races in certain situations, or I feel sweaty, or my hands kind of clam up. And there's also cognitive symptoms as well. So it's not just about the physical manifestations. So there's kind of a trait version of how do you typically feel? And then there's a state version that tries to assess right now, how do you feel? Because obviously there can be differences between how you feel in general and how you may feel in the moment. So an example, you know, I like to use is during summer vacation, you know, my state and trait anxiety levels are probably pretty similar to one another. Uh, But if you go to like, just before a job interview, you're going to see a huge spike on my state scores, even though maybe let's say overall, I tend to be a mild to moderate sort of anxious person. So there's different questionnaires out there that look at different aspects of anxiety. I am not a trained sports psychologist. I try and make that abundantly clear in the book is that I'm trying to rely on the research of others to give recommendations. Uh, But yeah, we used um, as one example, the Stixa to evaluate anxiety, both generally and then in the moment, right before a race on the morning of a race. Right. Okay. And so that's worth noting. I think that that's, that's probably normal that you, you should be getting, we always joke about it being, you're excited. You're not nervous. You're excited, uh, on the, on the morning of the race. But if we know that then is there, this is maybe getting specific, but let's, let's go there. Like what then would someone do if we knew, the race is coming, we're going to have to eat food and fuel, like what, what would be some strategies then if someone is one of these people that are having GI issues then? I mean, I really wish we had actual intervention studies addressing that question. So anything I say is just going to be based off of theory and speculation. But what I would say is we know from studies of people who have things like IBS and what's called functional dyspepsia, it's kind of like uh, maybe you feel full after eating or you have this gentle discomfort but you can't find any like structural cause. There's no anatomical cause. So both of those disorders, dyspepsia and IBS, are thought to be kind of highly linked to the brain in terms of stress and anxiety. So there are studies that have used things like deep breathing, mindfulness, cognitive behavior therapy, and have shown some reductions in IBS symptoms and uh, reductions in dyspepsia in people with those chronic conditions. So whether that would apply to athletes who are kind of the anxious type before a race, it's hard to say, but my guess is there may be some benefits and there's probably little risk of trying. Now, something like deep breathing is not obviously going to be 
as realistic during the race itself, but if you could apply it, you know, a half hour to an hour before the race starts, or just doing on a daily basis from some of the studies we've seen, it seems to dampen down your overall kind of sensitivity to um, stress-provoking uh, things in your environment. So yeah, you wonder if someone was you, you used trait and state. So maybe if you lower the trait, then the state might not go over that tipping point. Yeah, I think in, that's in that's theory. Yeah. yeah, and you know, there's little risk to most of those interventions. So I'm not going to say that they for sure would work, but I don't see a whole lot of risk to doing slow, deep breathing, breath counting for five to ten minutes per day, or trying mindfulness. I mean, I I, I can't see a whole lot of risk to that stuff. Um, caveat again, I'm not a trained psychologist, so I'm not going to um, go too far into um, the nitty gritty details of of everything involved with those interventions, but I think they're pretty low risk for them. And I do want to talk a bit about even just some dietary stuff we can do, but before, like, what this this struck me while I was writing today as well, I had a very thoughtful yeah, ride about this. Nice. Um, so we talk about, like, the athlete's heart, which, you know, in, in a medical setting, they look at a heart and it's like, oh, that's thickened or whatever, and this is, like, weird. But then we, we say, oh, no, this is an athlete's heart. This person does a lot of endurance exercise. They're okay. And, and it almost, when you're describing this as, like, oh, we have studies about IBS and, you know, they're having diarrhea and all this stuff, and that's a bad thing. But with the athletes, we're, you know, it's not, you know, I, I think it's easy to shrug it off. Do you think... I guess, do you think that there's, that we should be heeding this maybe more than we are as like, oh, that's normal for marathoners to be having diarrhea four times a week or whatever the number is? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, digestive and gut issues are so tricky because there can be so many different causes. And that's something you would find out pretty quickly if you read the book is that there are a lot of potential causes for every single symptom. So, yeah, I think the line between what's kind of normal, quote unquote, with running and with endurance athletes to where it trends into more problematic and uh, more implications for your health is a fine line in some cases. I would say if you're you know, regularly experiencing loose stools, diarrhea or severe constipation, bloody stools, anything that it's in actually impacting your quality of life. Um, then yeah, you, you really need to get that checked out by some sort of doctor or healthcare provider because there could be some underlying things going on that are really not just the byproduct of doing a lot of running. So where that line is, you know, that, that's hard to say. But I would say if it, it is really impacting your quality of life, if there's consistent pain or you're observing blood in your stool, things like that, then that's definitely time to get it checked out. Yeah, and in some cases you could see it easily affecting training, right? And we may not realize that, or we may, but you know, having to stop training would be an obvious, like direct, you know, you have yeah. stopped your your workout for this. Um, but even just, I would say, even just the the you know electrolyte balance and stuff like that, right? From from a, certainly a loose stool situation could be. If you're having chronic diarrhea, things like that, I mean, that, that basically what what it means is you've got probably some level of nutrient malabsorption going on because not everything you're eating is getting absorbed and then you're probably secreting as you were kind of mentioning their electrolytes into your guts which are passing out of you so yeah it's problematic to be experiencing lots of loose stools regularly um, if it's severe enough it certainly can contribute to micronutrient vitamin mineral deficiencies that can be detrimental to your health so you, so you mentioned loose stools, there could be constipation. Is there any other, like, what are, what else are we grouping into this typical, like, athlete's gut, um, you know, 
grouping of, of afflic- yeah. afflictions and symptoms. <laughs> I think if you start from kind of the top down, you work with nausea and vomiting. Uh, you go into the esophagus and you start to talk about reflux, regurgitation, heartburn. Into the stomach, you're more referring to fullness and bloating. And then as you work your way down into the actual intestines, we typically start to talk about cramping, uh, pain, side stitching, loose stools, constipation. Uh, so it, you can almost think about it in a top-down approach in that there are some symptoms or issues that more affect the upper gut and then some that more affect uh, the lower gut. Now, not all these symptoms are problematic. The two most common symptoms that you see in studies are belching and flatulence, which, you know, they're not always pleasant, but most athletes aren't going to stop a race because they're belching too much or because they're passing gas. I mean, that's not not likely. The ones that are more consistently linked to impairments in performance or training quality would be nausea, uh, intestinal cramping, stomach cramping, obviously loose stools and diarrhea, uh, bloating, because it's just physically more uncomfortable or painful or disturbing for most of those symptoms. Okay, and that's that's a good list. Now, is there, I guess when we're looking at this, someone's having these, what are, I don't know, there's so many different ways you could go, but as far as things, you know, first steps, if someone's having, again, sort of more of the, the diarrhea, like more of the gut stuff that is sort of starting to hinder workouts, where, where would you start or what seems like the most logical thing before we start, you know, people go to extremes of, yeah. you know, full keto or they're, you know, not, yeah. not eating period, right? Like before we do that, like what are some things that you, you feel like are, are pretty evidence-based, but again, like meditation, low cost, low, you know. Yeah. I think a good place to start is to actually start recording the symptoms you're experiencing what are the specific ones that are most troubling and how often are they occurring and then trying to document what is happening before and during uh, your sort of onset of those symptoms because what you quickly come to realize is that again there are a lot of possibilities so there are not just like universal interventions that tend to completely alleviate most if all gut problems you sometimes need to take like a symptom by symptom approach to deal with these issues. For, for example, if you were experiencing nausea uh, during exercise, some of the likely culprits or things you could modify would be uh, the amounts and timing of what you're ingesting beforehand. If you're ingesting too many stimulants or caffeine, it can do it. If you're fasted going into exercise, it can do it. If you're eating too much fatty food or like really super concentrated carbohydrate drinks before exercise, it can do it. Uh, Or if you're stressed or anxious, it can do it. So even with nausea, you can go through a list and there's even five to 10 possibilities right there. So that's why I would say you really probably want to start recording what's happening around the time of these symptoms. Think back, what did I do beforehand? And try and consistently get some sort of log as to are there things that seem to be happening over and over again that precede these symptoms? Right. It's almost like you need to, before you throw a bunch of darts at the wall, trying to answer the question I gave you, you almost want to say like, okay, well, what are you doing? Like, and, and I always say this too, like we, we were very quick to like throw everything out and I got to be an all new makeover, but it's like, no, like you're probably doing pretty well. You're just, you know, getting diarrhea periodically. Can we look at what you're doing? And like you say, it might be as simple as, Hey, you're eating like 20 minutes before you, you go for a run, could you eat two hours before or even an hour before or less, right? Yeah. Um, 
on, on that topic, is there any trends as far as like ideal time to eat beforehand or rules of thumb with the, the timing? It depends a lot on the nature of the exercise. So obviously the more intense the exercise is, if you're doing a interval workout or sprints or something like that, you're going to probably need more time in between when you start that exercise bout and when you're actually eating something. Because as you are getting above, you know, 75, 80% of VO2 max, kind of the maximal oxygen consumption, which is an intense zone for most people, obviously, uh, blood flow to the gut starts to really decline. The contractions in your stomach and your esophagus start to become a little bit more disjointed. Uh, it's documented pretty clearly that you get more reflux events when you're exercising at a high intensity. So if you're doing some sort of interval, interval or really hard workouts, I would at least probably eat a couple hours beforehand, unless it's a really small amount. Like if you're eating 90 minutes beforehand, but it's a pretty small amount of food or fluid, you know, I wouldn't necessarily worry a whole lot about that, but I wouldn't eat a full meal two hours before doing uh, that particular type of activity, especially a meal that is very calorically dense and very rich in fat uh, and solid protein and fiber. Those are things that tend to slow emptying from the stomach, and you generally, you know, that, that's good if you're trying to avoid hunger throughout your day, but before an exercise workout that's intense, you don't want to be crushing a lot of that. Yeah, I'll be honest, I had an issue with, uh, it's getting very humid here, as it is lots of places, and I, I really like cantaloupes uh, at this time of year, so yesterday I decided it was going to be a good idea to have a cantaloupe in the morning, but like had to get out on my bike workout, which happened to be quite intense. And when Peter says he had a cantaloupe, he actually means he had well, a cantaloupe. half of a good-sized cantaloupe, but it's a lot yeah. of like bulk, right? I think there's yes. a lot of fiber in a cantaloupe, and so anyhow, on that VO2 workout, uh, we'll spare the details, but... Did you thanks, get to, did you get to experience cantaloupe a second time? Uh, no, 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 <laughs> no, not that way. I don't have that happen very often. Okay, often, but yeah. yeah. Anyhow, yeah, the the intensity. So I think that's where it's it's tough for people because there's all these these variables, right? Like it's really hot out right now too, and then I th- put intensity and then the time. But then it's it's, a, it's confusing because some of these things are when you're looking at eating food, we all are, are so focused on like, what's the healthiest food, right? But that may not be the the ideal food before a, an intense VO2 max workout in the heat, right? Like I may actually want Correct. a pretty simple yeah. meal. Yeah, athletes in the general population are different. I mean, I, I am definitely an advocate of eating lots of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, healthy foods, but there's a time and a place for that stuff. And you may need to kind of reduce the quantity of some of those things in close proximity to exercise. I mean, the priority during exercise is to fuel your body and some of the quickest sources of digesting and absorbing things like carbohydrates and fluid are not gonna be coming from you know, whole vegetables or whole fruits during or before exercise. So you're right, I mean, it, it de- does depend on the context and particularly in the heat where a lot of these GI symptoms are made worse, um, you may be even kind of taper back the amount uh, or eat earlier before in comparison to other situations because those symptoms tend to be more prevalent in the heat. Ah, so I probably shouldn't have had breakfast for my marathon at 7 and then started it at 7.30 Well, not Sunday. a full. You, you had a little bit of toast. Maybe that was okay. But. <laughs> I had a giant bagel. <laughs> Who are you kidding? Okay. <laughs> we had uh, a pro tour rider come and visit our camp uh, here in the spring and just sort of talk to the kids, and he was – 
was it there or was it actually when you were interviewing i think it was there right he was talking about how like he before like a pro tour and he's like very good at climbing and in the heat and everything else and so like extremes of extreme but he was talking about like wasn't it like a white all white diet basically so like the reverse of what any nutritional thing but like as it gets closer to that big stage or or during even the stage race it's essentially like if it's white then i'll eat (laughs) but but it's like the opposite of some you know healthy things right and it's like that's a super extreme right which maybe most of us don't need but there may be that one day a year or two days I mean, before really key competitions, if you really want to absolutely minimize the risk of some of those possibilities, then yeah, I mean, that's an approach that I know a lot of athletes uh, will take to really try and just get not the risk down to zero, but to lower it as much as they possibly can. Yeah. Uh, so you're not gonna, you know, obviously you're not going to be eating that way all the all the time throughout the year. So doing it here and there before key competitions or training sessions is not going to negatively impact somebody's health if they're just doing it periodically. So I wouldn't worry about that aspect. Well, especially when the consequence of this healthy eating is that you're then getting diarrhea and not absorbing the healthy eating anyhow, right? Sure. Yeah. And it's (laughs) causing issues and it's unpleasant during exercise, then that's not really a win, obviously. No. No. Hey, Peter. What does a registered kinesiologist and endurance coach do? Well, Molly, let me tell you, I work with busy people that want to do big, crazy adventures. You know, these are people who have kids, they have families, they have all sorts of work stuff they got to do, but they have big goals. They maybe want to do a big mountain bike race, 100 miler, something like Dirty Kanza. They might just want to keep up on the group ride. And all these things are really, really cool adventures and really good breaks from all the other stuff we have going on in our, in our busy lives, right? So I help people do that. And so I really like programming and finding ways that we can fit movement into their lives. Sometimes that involves, you know, consultation around movement or trying to work through some sort of injury. Uh, and sometimes it's just dealing with, you know, fitting stuff in and getting the work done. So that's what I do. I, I coach and I build training plans and, you know, that's that's what a registered kinesiologist and endurance coach does in my case. And how can people get in touch with you if they're interested in, in well, chatting with you? You're on the Consummate Athlete podcast. You go to consummateathlete.com. You can find coaching links on that website. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. Dear cycling friends, We accept the fact that we have created the premier gravel and road racing podcast. But we don't think you're crazy to ask us who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a hobby blogger, a gravel pro, and a curious newbie. And you can find us on the Wide Angle Podium Network. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, the Grodio Podcast. On that note, some of, one of the more involved things that seems to be getting, and I, I know you talk about as well, is is this idea of FODMAPs and, and sort of these uh, digestible fibers. I'll let you talk about the acronym if you like, but um, <laughs> can you talk us through a bit that and when maybe when that, that level of restriction might be appropriate? So FODMAPs, yeah, another acronym. Uh, you don't have to do the whole thing. It's, I don't. it's full of acronyms. <laughs> it's fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Basically just like short chain carbohydrates that some people don't absorb super well. So maybe the two most prevalent ones that people have heard of would be lactose and fructose. So lactose obviously in dairy products, then fructose and fruits and certain sweeteners. So 
in some people, if you have a large intake of these, maybe I think it's probably more than like 30 or 40 grams a day of these FODMAPs, in a certain subset of people, you start to have issues like bloating, excessive gas, loose stools, diarrhea in some cases. And basically what's happening is that those FODMAPs are not getting completely absorbed. So when you have unabsorbed carbohydrate in your intestinal lumen, basically just the tube, the space, right, where food is, uh, water is going to be pulled out into the lumen to kind of equate the osmolality between that space and your blood. Those carbohydrates are going to get fermented in the colon because there's trillions of bacteria living in your colon, many of which uh, feed on carbohydrates. So, right, if you have water in the lumen, that equals loose stools. And if you have the carbohydrate getting fermented, that equals bloating and gas production. So this low-fat FODMAP-type diet was originally kind of applied in people with IBS and has been heavily used in that population. Since then, it's been kind of translated to some other um, populations like athletes. We have at least a few studies looking at low-FODMAP diets now. And I would say probably the, the best application would be just a short-term thing, again, prior to an important training session or competition where, again, you want to minimize the risk of some of those symptoms. And it really only makes sense for people who are eating a lot of FODMAPs. If you're not eating a lot of FODMAPs to begin with, then, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go on a crazy low FODMAP diet. Because the potential downside of these diets is when you're reducing fermentable carbohydrates in your diet, that means it's going to likely change the quantity or diversity of bacteria that are living in your colon. It's they're basically prebiotics, okay? They're basically substances that bacteria feed on. And if we reduce the amount of prebiotic that you're putting into your colon, it may have some sort of negative impact on your uh, colon health in the long term. So most people who do research on this say, we don't really know what the long-term health implications are of following a low FODMAP diet. You want to be careful about it. But if you're doing it for a day or two before a race, I mean, there's no no really health issue there that you should be concerned about in the long term. So um, it is a strategy that has some potential for benefit, especially athletes who are having bloating, flatulence, and loose stools. Yeah, and I, I, I've seen sort of there's the longer term, you know, whatever, weeks, but then there's also, like you say, the, the like day or two days out from a race just, you know, taking it easy was sort of fits with this only white diet, I guess, in some ways, I guess, depending on what the white stuff, white foods were. but Not cauliflower. Yeah, I don't think cauliflower <laughs> would work, yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, uh, I'm just trying to bounce through all the common afflictions and some of the questions and stuff we've had. The runners, a lot of times, will get like this feeling of like you have a water bottle in your your, your gut and you're running and it's like, you know, it's like you, yeah. <laughs> your gut is this water bottle that's shaking around. What what might that be due to? Kind of the sloshy stomach where yeah. it feels like you've got something just not emptying. You know, what seems most likely is that is food or fluid that's kind of sitting in your stomach and is not emptying all that quickly. There's a lot of reasons why that can happen. One of the major ones, again, is just if you're exercising intensely, you have less blood going to the gut because more of your blood is going to be going towards your skeletal muscle to supply the skeletal muscle with oxygen and fuel because the gut isn't really a major priority during heavy exercise. So those feelings are definitely more likely when you consume fluid during high intensity exercise. So if you're doing a harder workout, perhaps it's as easy as just reducing the amount of fluids you're consuming um, in some cases. If you have an athlete who's been told they need to drink, drink, drink all the time uh, and they're just over consuming fluid, that's one potential thing to look at. 
Other things would include too much hypertonic fluids, so basically concentrated carbohydrate electrolytes uh, drinks that basically slow emptying from the stomach. So that would be if you're like making your own beverage, you're putting a lot of sugar into it, a lot of electrolytes, it can have a negative effect on how quickly that empties from the stomach, which would explain why it feels like it's just kind of sitting there. And then in some cases, it's just environmental things like the heat, again, is going to have some of those effects. You tend to see more upper GI disturbances when it's hot out, probably because, again, more of your blood flow is going away from your guts to your skin to cool you off. So your body's competing for these resources in the skin and muscle are winning out and the gut is losing. So perhaps it's you're just not uh, as well acclimatized to the heat as you need to be. Or maybe you need to try some cooling strategies to deal with the core body temperature rise that you might experience in a hot environment. Uh, yeah, th I mean, there's a lot of potential explanations, but those are a few off the top of my head. But what it's suggesting is that things are just not emptying from your stomach as quickly as they should. Right, right. So how can we speed that up? So that, like you say, might be timing of that water bottle before might need to be removed or put earlier. It could be breakfast maybe is just sitting there and it's like throwing a bunch of water and stuff yeah. is in the gut trying to digest that. And if you're ingesting lots of fats, fiber, solid protein, those are things that tend to stay in your stomach a little bit longer. Right. Uh, so if you're eating too much of that stuff in the couple hours before exercise, that may have some negative impacts on uh, your gastric emptying during uh, during your exercise. Right. The other right. one would be dehydration. So if you're going into like an hour or two of exercise and you've really under-consumed fluids, there's some good studies that show when you put people like on a treadmill in a dehydrated state, you give them fluid, that fluid leaves the stomach slower when they're in a dehydrated state. So trying oh. to prevent extreme dehydration uh, is another way to maybe deal with that. So hydration is a tricky one because it's a fine balance. Mm -hmm. you, yeah, right. And, and it could be someone who's like been without water and then gets to an aid station and pay, just pounds like a liter yeah. and now they have a liter in their gut. But the gut isn't like using it all at once. There's still a rate limiter of some type there, right? Yeah. So maybe they've under-consumed fluid for the whole marathon or their whole race. They get to an aid station, they're really starting to feel thirsty. They down a bunch of fluid. And at that point, they're so dehydrated that that fluid is not going to empty as fast as you'd want it to. And you've got this huge sloshing volume of fluid in there that doesn't feel good. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, this this might be like a question that's like kind of oversimplifying things, but, we, you know, you often hear, well, I guess it's kind of up for a pretty big debate, the um, carbohydrates in your sports drink versus like carbohydrates and your, your electrolytes and water. Um, can you just explain, I think you're more on the like food plus like water and electrolytes versus like a sports drink? Yeah, that, that is such a hard question. I know, I know. <laughs> no, it, it's a great question. I think it's one that a lot of athletes and practitioners kind of struggle with how to best uh, approach that. And then I think issue. from like the super simplistic standpoint, it's like when I hear it, there's part of my brain that's just like, but isn't it all kind of the same thing once it gets into our gut? We're still talking about calories and water. So to some extent, what is the what is like the difference? Like, how does that? change your digestion so food form does make some difference and there's some interesting studies that have for example compared how uh, digestible are things like uh, carbohydrate based bars versus gels versus liquids so what they'll do is they'll take a carbohydrate sports beverage like gatorade or powerade 
in one condition. In another condition, they'll do gels with an equal amount of carbohydrate, but then just water on top of it to match the fluid volume. And then another condition, they might do bars with an equal amount of carbohydrate and then again additional water on top of it to again equate the fluid. And what seems to be somewhat consistent is that bars actually do seem to cause more fullness, bloating, maybe some nausea. And my guess is because if people aren't chewing those bars particularly well or other solid foods particularly well, you end up with larger food particles in the stomach. And one of the things that regulates gastric emptying is how big is the typical size of these particles in your stomach. So your stomach's going to take a while if it's saying, hey, these particles are too big, we're going to work on it for a while before we let it leave the stomach. Mm -hmm. So if you're wolfing down a bar or fruit or something else and not chewing it very well, that is one situation where it may have some negative effects on the way that you feel moving forward. Now, fluid in a Gatorade versus water in a gel, I think it comes down to, to a certain extent, what are the environmental conditions? If it's really hot and humid and you expect to be sweating a lot, then a standard sports drink tends to work fairly well in some of those situations. But if it's not as hot and the person isn't expecting to sweat as much and you still want to ingest a fair amount of carbohydrates, it's hard to do that strictly from Gatorade because the volumes of Gatorade you need to consume to do that would be huge. Like if you wanted to consume even 30 grams of carbohydrates an hour, which is not a huge amount, but a you know decent um, amount for the average person, you'd have to drink 500 milliliters of Gatorade per hour if you're going to solely rely on Gatorade. So in hotter environments, it may make more sense to more exclusively rely on sports beverages. But when it gets cooler and you're sweating less, if you still want to ingest a fairly sizable amount of carbohydrates, you kind of have to tailor your feeding to have some things like gels and solid foods with water and carbohydrate electrolyte beverage on top of it. Mm-hmm. Complicated answer, so. No, I love it. I'm sorry that it's not a more simple yeah. recommendation. And it strikes me that it's, like you say, it depends a bit on like the race situation, um, you know, the athlete, you know, the goals of the athlete. Because if you're, you know, doing, I'm thinking of like clients I have that do like a seven day mountain bike stage race and they're, they're you know, not going you know, the under 70% of VO2 or max heart rate a lot of the times, you know, they can have solid foods, bars, whatever, and they'll be fine, right? Like they're sort of yeah. doing the talk test type pace. Um, but then if you, on the flip side, if you're looking at like the two hour marathon, you know, that they're all going for where they're going so intensely and running, right? Sport type, yeah. athlete type, um, then maybe. Yeah, it, like a multi-day ultra marathon or even a you know, 12, 24 race versus a, a 26.2 marathon. Those are different races. So the lower average intensity for a longer event typically allows people to handle more solid foods, assuming they chew it well and assuming they practice with those foods during training. So unfortunately, there's not just like a simple recommendation for feeling during competition or training. It depends a lot on how long you're going, how hard you're going and the environmental conditions. It strikes me, yeah, like in the even those longer ones, though, if it was starting to get, you know, hotter and later in the event, uh, would that be a time to start moving towards a more simple type thing like a, a gel or a, a water or how, what's your feeling on that one? For some athletes, that is what they end up doing. And in part, it's nausea is a big issue for a lot of those longer events. You know, you look at like the Western States Endurance Run, a couple of studies from there show that like 60% of competitors have some level of nausea. Now, 
not all of them are experiencing kind of puke your guts out level <laughs> of mean, severity. Also, but, it's like a billion degrees and a hundred yeah, miles. Running so race like, long. Yeah. If you're not so you nauseous. Extreme <laughs> endeavors and you see a really high prevalence. And nausea is actually the leading reason for why runners drop out of that race. If you look at one single reason. So again, it depends a lot on the situation, but yes, in some cases, shifting to more of a homogenized, easily digestible form of fuel for some athletes can be a way to minimize uh, gastrointestinal issues. It varies a lot from person to person. I mean, it, people are just very different in terms of how they handle different foodstuffs. Yeah. I was at a Amanda aid station for a hundred mile like gravel bicycle race. And the variation that you see, right? Like you have someone coming in and just like, I don't want the pickles, but like, give me the pickle juice jar. And they're like drinking the pickle <laughs> juice jar. But then the other person's like, no, I like has their like little package of sugar powder. They like put into their things and carry on yeah. and everything it in between. Right. Reminds me of a, a study I did when I was a PhD student at this triathlon it was a 70.3 mile uh, race. And we were, we were actually measuring what they were eating during the event. So we collected food logs and then wrappers and stuff that they were using. And I remember this one person, I couldn't believe what they were ingesting was a mixture of Diet Mountain Dew and tomato juice was their concoction of choice. So oh, people wow. ingest all sorts of weird stuff that you just kind of wonder, number one, what's the point of that? There's not really a whole lot of fuel in there. I was going to say, did you ask why? Uh, <laughs> why Diet Mountain Dew? I, that's my question. <laughs> These are the these are the questions that you wish you would ask, but you know they just turn these papers in, and you're like, okay, that seems like an odd choice to me. But I feel like that guy was just screwing with you, to be honest. Like <laughs> we had a stage race one time. I was racing mountain bikes, and not my partner, but a friend who was there as well. That we sort of went as two teams, and and they had like this race beverage, but it ended up being I don't know if it was noon or or whatever, but like one of these like more electrolyte things that taste sugary, but like have very little calories yeah and he had been like just one of these people that's like yeah i'll just use the race fuel but he was like using this like zero calorie race fuel and he was feeling so awful and we yeah. realized it was day four i think of seven he realized like got talking to someone like oh what's in this there's a for my nutrition class that i teach here at old dominion there's a slide that i like to show kind of the first lecture where i talk about you know, marketing of sports products and evaluating stuff critically. There's a, it was like some sort of Ironman water product where they were advertising as being, you know, endurance promoting and a good choice for, you know, athletes doing those hour, hour, hour long events. And there were no calories in it, no caffeine, nothing. It was like oxygenated water that they were promoting. And it's like, you know, think through this stuff logically. I mean, it, it's ludicrous that people would buy this stuff but i mean there's there's in some cases a pretty low level of nutrition knowledge not only among the general public but some athletes as well so you can understand why sometimes people buy into this stuff when in all likelihood there's not a whole lot of benefit to um, many products yeah we we often say like we we tend to forget because we've both been in endurance sport for so long and like it's just such a natural thing that we've read so many books about sports nutrition and nutrition in general and all of this that like you forget that yeah, like the, the average person hasn't taken a nutrition class or a sports nutrition class or any of that stuff. They're, yeah. they're basing it off of, you know, largely headlines and, you know, the first couple of paragraphs of articles for the most part. I feel like the longer you get into it, the more and more you read, kind of the the farther you get away from the average person in terms of what they know, you forget like that 
the basic knowledge around nutrition can be sometimes pretty low. And that's, you know, that's not a criticism, just people no. in different places. And, you know, knowledge comes with time if you spend um, a good in, amount of, of your time and investment into learning. And um, it's just, you know, trying to educate athletes in some cases where uh, they may need some help in terms of their feeling and whatnot. Yeah. Well, and I think we also, as, as humans, want to find the one solution, right? And I think the more you get into it, there, there's maybe a, a point in, in knowledge where you realize there's there's no conclusion and no, especially with nutrition and, and athletic nutrition, there's no perfect solution, right? It depends so much on the person and the application and the day and the, you know, all of these yeah. factors. I can tell you my wife hates this this answer that I give to almost everything is when she asks something simple about nutrition or whatever else or physiology and I'll give her the, it depends answer, which is, yeah, I was just going to say the, the motto of this podcast should actually be, it depends well, everything. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I only really like when we have experts on who start most things with, it depends because I feel like whenever someone's like, Oh yes, this is the answer. I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I understand people want simple messaging. So I try when possible to say, it depends, and we don't know for sure, but this is these are the risks, these are the pros. Make a choice, and maybe it'll help, maybe it won't. But not, you know, not be uh, disingenuous about what the actual evidence says about something. I mean, I'm not trying to fool people into thinking that there's simple solutions to a lot of these things. No, but I do think some of this stuff of, you know, A, try it. Like, you should be practicing and training. You know, these are some areas where, you know, just it, it, it doesn't make sense to go, you know, you know, just not doing, consuming anything, right, would be some, yeah. some people end up in that situation. And that's, you can understand how they end up there when they have all these issues. And, you know, the only thing that seems to take care of those issues are not eating or something, right? Um, so I wonder, yeah. in line with that, can we, we I don't want to keep you too long today. So I do want to finish on, I have two topic areas, and we'll see how, how well we can do these two in, in the last little bit here. Um, the one is around training the gut. You know, so we, someone's having these issues. Can you talk us through some of the concepts of training the gut and where that might be important? Yeah, training the gut is something that has been talked about more so in the last, say, 10 years, 5, 10 years. And it's, it's kind of the idea that just like any other organ in your body, you can train the gut to function differently. Just like as you would do interval work or lift weights or any other form of training, you're going to get an adaptation the same is true for the gastrointestinal system. It's a little bit different, obviously, in that a lot of the training has to do with what you put into your mouth and what you ingest over time is going to, to a large extent, dictate uh, how your gut may respond or function uh, during training or competition when you're trying to eat. So the basic tactics are basically ingesting the types of foods and nutrients that you anticipate you're going to be eating during competition in your training so that your gut is better able to digest and absorb those nutrients. So the probably classic example would be if you want to attempt to eat a lot of carbohydrate during your race. So let's say you're doing a marathon and you want to try and ingest like 60 grams per hour of carbohydrates. I mean, that's a pretty hefty load. That's three sports gels, two and a half to three sports gels per hour. Uh, and that's a fair amount of fuel to be trying. So it's not for the average person by any means, but elite athletes do this stuff. Like Kipchoge supposedly uh, eats, you know, 90 to 100 grams per hour during his marathon attempts. So if you're going to do that, you want to make sure your gut can handle all that carbohydrates. And we have studies to suggest that if you are 
uh, following a high carbohydrate diet for several days to weeks, what happens in the gut is there's a upregulation or an increase in the little protein transporters that you find in the intestines that help you absorb that sugar. So if you were to try ingesting something like 80 or 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour without training your gut, what's likely to happen is a chunk of that sugar is not going to get absorbed and you're going to have some pretty substantial gastrointestinal distress. So kind of the rule of thumb here is if you are a person who's going to push the boundaries of what you're going to try and do during a race or during even a longer training session, then it is critical that you kind of train your guts to handle those nutrients um, in the weeks and days that precede that competition or that training session. Now, carbohydrate gut training is probably the most common one, but uh, you know, there's research to show that if you decided you want to eat a lot of fat for some reason during ultra running, that there are adaptations that happen in the the gut that are specific to fat digestion and absorption as well. And then I guess it's in line with that, but I mean, would there be like even just the bulk or the weight that's in the stomach? Like, is, is there, I, I've heard, I think a bit of an element of training the gut just to be used to that feeling even. Yes. I think that's actually a big part of it. So some of it is actually nutrient specific adaptations, meaning like the stomach, if you ingest a lot of carbohydrate for a few days, let's say you took like a, a glucose drink and there was 60 grams in it and you ingested that every day for a week what would happen is that your stomach would more quickly empty that glucose drink and probably absorb the glucose a little bit more efficiently so that's a nutrient specific adaptation to glucose but what you're talking about is more just a general perception type adaptation right where you have to get accustomed to feeling those larger volumes of food and fluid in your stomach. And I do think that is an important part of the adaptation process is that perception part of it. And you wonder if like you mentioned, which I think is a great factor in exactly what we were talking about when we started, but the Western no, Western states with the, the, the biggest reason for failure is not necessarily fitness. I, I don't know how extensive this was, but was actually the nausea, the di- digestive issues. So you wonder how many of these ultra marathoners we're training fasted or training with lower amounts of intake or whatever it is, right? That they ended up with some of these gut issues because of that feeling of fullness. Yeah, it's it's uh, potentially possible that a subset of those athletes maybe didn't practice enough or weren't training enough with their fueling approaches uh, so that when they got to race day, they tried something in the latter half of the race and it didn't go particularly well. But yeah, I, I think it is really important, again, especially for athletes who are going to try and really be aggressive about their in-race nutrition strategies. If you're just going to you know, eat 15, 20 grams of carb an hour, drink based on your thirst during a marathon or something else, I don't think it's that critical to train your guts. Now, I would, I would say still practice periodically, but for your back-of-the-pack, middle-of-the-pack runner who's going pretty slow – you know, there's not a real strong rationale for training the gut in the first place because that athlete isn't going to need a whole lot of extra carbohydrate and fluid to, to begin with. They're not going to be sweating as much. They're not going to be burning as much in terms of carbohydrate and, and energy. So these strategies are really for higher level athletes who are trying to push the boundaries of what they can do. So it's not for everybody. I don't think everybody needs to be kind of pounding down carbohydrate and fluid during training to train their gut unless they're going to be trying that in competition. Right. That output, the the total like speed, the wattage is, is relevant, I guess. Right. And and this is an area that I find actually somewhat trouble. Like I find it hard to interpret. So maybe this is like question one B of the two I had left. Um, you know, you have your 
say four plus four and a half plus marathon or again your everyday person so they read you know the recommendations like for exercise over two hours you know you'll see range like 30 to 60 grams for sure um you know but like two gels an hour is pretty common as well but is there a difference as far as fuel utilization or, or strategy for those people because the length like they're not a two hour and change marathon or you know they're yeah. four and a half or down way lower percentage of vo2 so so how do you reconcile that time with the fueling needs so what happens is they are going at a lower percentage of their vo2 max so uh, on a kind of per minute basis, they are using less carbohydrate because the lower the intensity, the more fat you typically use. But to your second point, they're going longer. So in the end, they end up burning probably a fairly similar amount of total carbohydrate or maybe a little bit less, but it ends up being a sizable amount. Uh, you know, that being said, an athlete who's back of the pack, middle of the pack, are probably less concerned about, on average, their performance than someone towards the front. Not always, but I think that's fairly safe assumption is they're not so invested in their performance in right. all cases. No one's no one's paying them at the finish line. Yeah. So. <laughs> so I think there's just a different strategy to begin with. And I, you know, the recommendations from the ACSM, the American College of Sports Medicine, for example, would say 30 grams per hour on the low end, upwards of 90 grams per hour on the high end. Most athletes are probably going to be between that 30 and 60. If you're, again, an athlete who's middle of the pack, back of the pack, and you're not super concerned about your time, you can easily finish a marathon without gobbling down lots of carbohydrates in most cases. I'm not saying it wouldn't make a difference in terms of maybe how you might feel uh, if you're used to ingesting carbohydrates in your diet and during training. Uh, but those recommendations that you would see from sporting organizations are really actually targeting higher level athletes. For other athletes or runners, I, I don't, you know, you can kind of do what works for you. And I don't think it's going to be as critical to hit these um, specific target ranges for carbohydrate, for example, uh, in all cases. Yeah, sometimes I'll say it's almost like you almost want to find between and then it's up to you how much you experiment from there. But like you don't want to vomit and then you know, you also want to get out there and have the energy you want to have, right? So if you're not having the energy you want to have, then there might be more fueling needed. If you're vomiting, then there might be something on the too much, like you say, the, they're drinking straight yeah. Gatorade, rich Gatorade or something. And if you're going at a slower pace, 30 extra grams per hour of carbohydrate would you know, probably be sufficient for most people. And that's much more tolerable, obviously, than if you're trying to ingest, you know, two or three gels an hour. So, for your slower runner, your middle of the back, the pack runner, going on that lower um, range of the recommendations is going to be more appropriate than the higher end. Just from the fact that they're not burning as much carbohydrate per hour as compared to, you know, Kipchoge or any other elite marathoner um, are almost relying 100% on carbohydrate, not not 100%, but pretty darn close. Right, right. And for so for them, it's more critical to be fueling, especially early, so that they have it at the end, right? So you're preserving yeah. that glycogen store. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I think that that's made it slightly clear. I know there, there is no clarity to be had, really, in, in the end. <laughs> no perfect answer, but we're, we're closer. So the last one is actually one that I'm somewhat passionate about, and I know you touch on in your book. Um, but this idea of, you know, as humans, as adults, we consume several different things that, that do potentially have negative effects on our guts. So I wonder if you could touch on, um, I guess, NSAIDs, probably coffee, and then alcohol. So maybe if we start with NSAIDs and sort of painkillers generally, I, I tend to be very much on the, like, just really, really be careful 
Um, but I'm wondering, can you touch on how this affects the gut and risks of, yeah. of, you know, every day after my run or every Saturday after my long run, I'm, you know, or getting through my long run. Yeah, or before, it's probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So NSAIDs are one, I would say it's definitely dose and frequency dependent in that the higher the dose, the more frequent you do it, the more likely there are going to be some negative consequences to that. In terms of the gut, specific to exercise, what happens is when you're doing something that is an intense or prolonged effort, um, even without ingesting painkillers or NSAIDs, you have sort of a state of gut leakiness. So what happens is that there are things in your intestinal lumen that end up being uh, passed into your blood that typically would not end up there because your gut starts to become more leaky, uh, leaky as you do prolonged or intense exercise. You know, there's probably some normal amount of leakiness that happens, but what we see is that if you ingest NSAIDs prior to exercise, it makes that leakiness worse. Now, what's the problem with that? Some of the things that pass in your blood would uh, be what we call endotoxins. They're basically components of uh, the bacterial uh, wall uh, in certain bacteria. And they're thought to possibly make the risk of heat illness more likely. Uh, so that's, that's one potential downside. The other would be things like gastrointestinal hemorrhaging or bleeding. We know that high-dose NSAIDs in even non-athletes is associated with a high risk of gastric ulcers, gastric bleeds, because those medications act on some of the pathways that are involved um, in creating the protective factors for your intestines and stomach. Okay, there's kind of a mucus layer that protects your stomach and your intestines, and those NSAIDs kind of blunt the production of some of those factors that are involved in protecting it. Even beyond the gut, though, there's concerns about exacerbating asthma, increasing the risk of hyponatremia, and blunting training adaptations if you're taking them all the time. So to me, there's good reason to avoid them if possible. Now, if you take one or two NSAIDs occasionally after a workout or even before a workout, I probably wouldn't be super concerned about it, but high dose uh, very frequently is definitely something to be careful of. Yeah, and probably the, like you say, the blunting of training things hopefully gets people to just pause a little bit and think, you know, are, are you now just like, making yourself sore for no major purpose, right? Like, could you do less potentially or address yeah. some of these gut-based things that we're talking about to avoid it if it's for something? It's not even just NSAIDs too. It's uh, antioxidants, cold water immersion. If you apply too many of those recovery things all the time, it basically makes the training stress less and you adapt less to that training. Sure. So there's a time and place for that stuff. You just want to be careful about the dose and how frequently you use it. Yeah, I think that's a great message. Now, sim I guess not similar, but w often we'll try and uh, recover, quote unquote, uh, with with a, a, you know a beer or alcohol, or or that might come into it. Now, where could could someone run into some issues as far as gut health uh, with alcohol, um, which to me seems like a low hanging fruit versus like jumping onto any like crazy diets or elimination stuff. Like a lot of us have this alcohol in there. Is there could that be part of why I'm having you know again loose stools or something like this during my run? Yeah, I think it depends to some extent, again, on the dosage and when you're ingesting it. If it's sort of post-run, you have a beer or two or a glass of wine or something like that, I think it's pretty improbable that it's causing major issues with gut health. It gets into the sort of binge drinking territory where you start to have more noticeable issues, whether it be with a higher risk of ulcers or stomach irritation 
um, or things like nutrient malabsorption when you're ingesting, you know, four or five, six drinks in a period of a, a few hours. But to me, you know, an alcoholic beverage, one or two post-run especially, um, you know, you obviously probably want to be including things like protein and other important recovery nutrients. Like water. <laughs> like water. Uh, but, you know, beer actually has fluid in it. And assuming you're not drinking four drinks, it, it does contribute to sure. uh, fluid recovery. And maybe day. it's benefit, again, similar to like my cantaloupe might have been better placed after my workout um, the other day. Um, yeah. So it, it's sometimes, again, this gets to this idea of timing that's somewhat difficult in some ways but also i think if you back up and just think about the load your body's coming into then and you start thinking about timing then a lot of times we don't have to be depriving ourselves so much of, of the stuff with super elimination diets or anything like that yeah. the timing actually could be a, a big piece yeah i agree you know it's especially in stressful times you're looking for some sort of outlet obviously drinking too much is not a great outlet but having an occasional glass of wine or beer especially after a hard run you know it's a ritual that a lot of people uh, like to have and assuming you can kind of keep it in check yeah, you know I, I don't see any problem with that in terms of gastrointestinal function or health uh, if you're staying away from the four five six plus drink per sitting situation right. um, so one that maybe the timing and this will be my last one then is the the timing may be not as good is is that that morning espresso or four espressos you know or, or big grande coffee um, what, what are some, you leave my big grande coffee alone. You <laughs> leave that out of this. <laughs> um, so what, what are some guidelines there, especially, especially for, again, the person with the jiggly, like bottle of water in their stomach or, or, or having diarrhea, like where the coffee might not seem yeah. as, as, again, we're quick to eliminate stuff, but maybe not that. So what, what are some common things with coffee? Yeah, I'll, I, I suppose I'll probably focus more on the caffeine component cause there's probably more clarity there. Obviously that's a component of, um, coffee type drinks. I mean, there's mainly two things with respect to your gut to be concerned about with too much caffeine exposure or caffeine ingestion. One would be that it tends to stimulate colon motility, basically meaning it provokes urges to, to go number two, which is fine. But if you're concerned about that during a run, you might want to just time your coffee or caffeine consumption appropriately. The effects on colon motility probably peak out, you know, 30 to 45 minutes after ingestion. So if you want to avoid kind of the urge to have to go to the bathroom during a run, timing your caffeine or coffee consumption so it happens maybe hour, hour and a half beforehand would minimize the risk of that actually happening during the run itself. The other issue with caffeine and gut health or gut function would be at higher dosages, it definitely can contribute to nausea during intense workouts. So anything that causes extra secretion of uh, adrenaline or what we call catecholamines into the blood can make nausea worse. So intense exercise leads to catecholamine secretion. Fasting does it. Uh, heavy caffeine consumption does it. And stress and anxiety do it. So especially when you combine some of those things, let's say you take someone who's doing a fasted workout in the morning, uh, they didn't consume any calories, uh, but they decided to basically drink black coffee and they're doing an interval workout. That's a recipe potentially for nausea. Now, most people probably wouldn't do that, but people do some weird things when it comes to their workouts. Uh, so, so coffee in high dosages or heavy dosages with lots of caffeine in some people could make nausea worse, particularly during a hard workout um, in the morning, for example. 
That's perfect. And, and I think that was pretty positive. I was worried you were going to end on on, uh, <laughs> on cut out coffee, but you didn't. You said coffee's okay. No. Yep, we <laughs> don't have to edit in. this. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to leave people <laughs> no. with that note. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you to cut out coffee or beer. You're not going to hear that from me. Awesome. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so timing much. Timing and dosage. <laughs> thank you. Timing and dosage. Exactly. Thank yeah. you so much. There's some great things. I've taken a bunch of notes here and, and you've clarified a few things that I was sort of wondering about. Um, we really enjoyed your book, and people can find it and more information about you at theathletesgut.com. Uh, right. Did you want to give any other links or shout-outs to anything? Yeah, this is embarrassing, but I'll have to look. Uh, my I always my Twitter handle is one where I'm always uh, I made it too long to begin with, and I want to make sure I get the right Twitter handle. We can link to it too. Yeah, you can link to it, but it's at uh, sportsrd underscore phd. Okay, I that, love it. That's not the the craziest one I've ever no, seen. So it's yeah, not. for some reason I have trouble remembering it. I don't know. Why. Fair enough. Well, you, you it's like your phone number. You don't ever phone yourself. Yeah. Correct. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was super fun. Yeah, I appreciate the invite, and it's uh, been an uh, interesting talk, and I enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. While you still have your podcast app open, do us a huge favor. Head over to iTunes or whatever app you're listening in and rate and review the podcast. It's super helpful. It you know gets us more guests on the show. It gets me a dog. Um, and it's just you know a good way to give back if we've provided any kind of value to you throughout all of the episodes you've listened to. If you're looking for the show notes, you can find those at www.consummateathlete.com. We have lots of other content over there, and any information about coaching or events can also be found at that same website. And you can find us on the social medias at Molly J. Herford and at Peter Glassford on Twitter and Instagram, and we would love to hear from you. Thanks so much, and we will see you next week. 